if you if you haven't been to a factory, you have sort of a romantic idea of how that looks like the 19th century, and then you you go there, and it's it's really a very alien place where all the material has shapes you have never seen because they don't occur in the real world. Where all the processes you make no sense uh, to a sort of outside world general perspective. So it's really a a concentrated alien place where dark techno magic happens and gives us stuff at very affordable prices. Everything you see around you at some point has gone through that sort of magic creation of stuff for us that the machines mostly do. In this fifth episode of the Reautomated Podcast, we start a two-part mini-series discussing artificial intelligence and robotics. Our guest is Ronnie Voon, CEO and founder of Micropsy Industries, a German company and long-standing leader in AI whose goal is to automate tasks that are traditionally difficult for industrial robots. Ronnie is the rare combination of philosopher and AI expert. In this episode, he breaks down the trending topic of AI with definitions and then contextualizes it to the robotic space. He shares his candid thoughts about why there has been hesitation to adopt AI-powered robots in manufacturing in the past and how we might address this in the future. Ronnie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Ronnie, uh, you've had this company since 2014. And I think before that, I've done some research and you're an expert on AI in a lot of senses. So we're going to start kind of broadly today and help our audience understand some of the larger implications of AI and then delve a little bit deeper into what your company does and how it solves a specific problem. So I'm going to start off. The first question that we have is when I hear about AI, it kind of seems like everything. So what exactly is AI? Well, yeah, okay. I don't know if I have sort of the the answer that is true for everybody, right? Everybody uses the term slightly differently and they have all the right to do so. But uh, from where I'm coming from and where sort of my early interest in the topic came from was really, so if machines can think, uh, thinking is something mechanical. Um, And if something is mechanical, you can understand it, right? You have some levers and some this. The mechanics of thinking must be comprehensible uh, if machines can do it. And that's interesting for many reasons because I mean, thinking is not just something that we all enjoy doing. It is also the fundamental thing that makes Earth an interesting place. I mean, okay, there's life. This is already very interesting. But then, you know, on top of life, you have intelligence. And that changes the equation completely again, right? Nothing is the same because humans, one of the few thinking animals, properly thinking animals on the planet, we can do things that evolution can't do. We cheat. We 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 adapt to environments faster than waiting for the ones who have the wrong genes to die. Right. So you you get a once intelligence enters the game, everything changes, everything accelerates, and it's exciting. And I always wanted to know what is that, and AI is a way of exploring that. Right. Because once you build it, you understand what's going on. And then of course, you know, this is pure curiosity. But while you're doing that. You also learn how to make machines intelligent, and uh, that means you can do things that you couldn't do before with them, including factory automation and uh, making stuff for us, which is also a good thing. So AI, because it's kind of seen as everything by a lot of people, it can have a lot of different definitions, um, but you kind of use it to understand the way that humans think, and that yeah. probably relates to your background as a philosopher. Yeah, right. It is... Uh, it is automated intelligence. 
Um, and intelligence is sort of one of the most interesting things uh, you can you can be curious about. And uh, there is often a term used where, along with AI, sometimes interchangeably, sometimes not. The word is machine learning. So what is the difference in your perspective between machine learning and AI? Yeah, machine learning is really a more technical term. Right? That's Philosophy doesn't talk about machine learning. Uh, philosophy talks about intelligence. Um, machine learning is really sort of the technical, technological thing you can do to make machines smarter. So, And that usually means you have some data. And you try to have a piece of software that is not fully finished, right? When we software developers are done writing the piece of software, the behavior that the software will expose isn't known. So you need to input some data, uh, and then it adapts to this data, extracts information from that data, and generates behavior that is more complex than what you've put in into the uh, programming. So it's dependent on the data. Uh, and then you get a system that combines sort of the basic capabilities you gave it, plus what it's learned from data from the world to show interesting behavior. Typically today, that's done with neural networks, right? That's sort of the where the big oomph in the last 10 years came from because we learned how to do deep neural networks. Uh, but there are many other older, still competing machine learning uh, techniques, right? Support vector machines are cool. And uh, there's, a, there's a number of ways to do what I've described in the abstract. Uh, but the sort of the big topic right now uh, and the thing that changed the game for everybody in AI in the last 10 years uh, is deep neural networks um, and new ways to train them and new ways to do architectures. So how you do the design of the thing that learns. Uh, that allows you to do many more interesting things than uh, we used to be able to do in the 90s or early 2000s when neural networks were understood, but uh, not to a degree where you could do all the things that today we can do with it. Uh, so we kind of start broad with AI and then we, we kind of learn deep neural nets are really what AI currently means. Machine learning, that's good definition work. Uh, we can use that for the rest of the episode. Thank you. So uh, I would like to transition a little bit and kind of ask you a more broad question about why automation is so hard to get right uh, currently, if you're a manufacturer looking to automate or something like that, uh, and how specifically can AI help in this journey? So automation is both hard and uh, isn't. I mean, we're doing it. And the many of the success stories of whole industries and national economies over the last decades are success stories of automation. Why do the German and the um, Japanese car industries so well? Because they embraced automation in the 70s and the economies that didn't embrace automation, that sort of were fighting it, went out of business and the Japanese and the Germans are operating their car factories. Right? So this is really, this is a, there's a culture of doing things mach with machines uh, where the quality and the consistency and the price you get from humans is just not up to par uh, with the machines. In the in the case of automotive manufacturers? In the case of automotive, it, I mean, it exists in many places, but I, th I think it's, I mean, I'm German, right? So there's car factory everywhere. But And that's, that's where we look when we talk about automation as sort of the most professional people who, who, who do it as automotive OEMs. But yeah, it's, I think it's, it's most clearly visible there how much it, how much it matters. Uh, how much it matters to be able to do a quality product, right? It's not always cost. 
Um, it's more often about consistency of quality that machines can deliver that. Humans have a harder time if you have, you know, your best human can always give you the best quality, but you don't have the best human all the time for all the tasks. So that's why it matters. Uh, why is it hard? Um, you need to be a very good engineer to do it. That's because you need to understand both the process that you're automating and all the physical and electrical properties of what's going on in such a system. You cannot start to just try stuff and then you'll arrive at a good um, at a good system. You need to think this through. And for that, you need a lot of experience, a lot of diligence, and a lot of patience. And these are rare properties. And if you ever try to you know, get your own brain to employ them at the same time, uh, you know how annoying this is. Uh, so uh, rightly so, automation people are highly paid specialists and experts um, that still make a ton of mistakes because it is hard to predict um, you know, all the things that reality does to you when you try to control everything. And for automation, you need to control everything because nothing in your process thinks. Everything is stupidly executing what you designed a couple of years ago. If there's no ad adaptivity, all reality needs to conform to your expectations that you made a lot. Yeah, that reminds me of a previous episode uh, that we were we had uh, talking with Julie Shaw and Ben Armstrong um, about kind of being a process expert in understanding the pieces that you're working with. There was a quote recently, I think, by Elon Musk, where he says, the idea of manufacturing in general is the idea of organizing atoms, really. Yeah. And automotive companies are, in fact, kind of some of the best people at organizing the atoms. They understand every bit of material that comes in, the raw material that comes into the manufacturers. And at the end, they produce a very highly organized car uh, yeah. and they do a lot of it um, and they do it over and over again, uh, but not not necessarily changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, this is true for all of manufacturing, right? You have a factory and it's a machine to reorganize atoms into a more valuable form. You put stuff in, whatever that is, and then you move them around, move stuff around, essentially. And then... Uh, the organization of the material that you put in is more valuable at the other end. And um, now you can now you can think about, okay, how do I do the reorganization? The special thing about automotive, um, especially not Tesla, but sort of classical automotive, the way they do things is they know where all the atoms are at every given point in time. They can afford that level of control over their processes. The material is precisely known. And if you move a robot in a car factory, the robot doesn't need to be perceptive because it knows where the car is, and the car's, car is always in the same place when it is supposed to be there with millimeter precision, and you can just move a weld gun to a point in space that is fixed because you know the car will be there. Everybody who doesn't make cars does not have that luxury. Their factories are more disorganized, and that's a good thing because also it makes them flexible. Right? If you have a car factory... You better be damn sure that you want to make cars and nothing else. And you better be damn sure that you want to make it for many years because that's all your machines can do. Um, if you, you know, want to do a digger, you don't have the machines and you don't have the people. Nothing is flexible. Everything is highly optimized for making cars at high quality with a very good margin. <laughs> that's, of course, why people do it. So everybody who's smaller than a car manufacturer and more flexible because they you know, work for car manufacturers and need to change their product more often cannot really afford uh, to have that level of control and predictability of the material, of the, of the atoms. So their factories look more like individual stations, sometimes with the robot, sometimes with human. And then there's trolleys with the material. Um, and uh, what a trolley with a 
sort of box of material means, you lose control of how exactly your atoms are organized because they're just in a, in a bag or in a box at some point. And then how do you come back from that, right? Yeah, now you need a system that is intelligent, that um, removes the disorganization that you created, that you let happen. It's typically a human, right? Um, in all of history, this has been humans. You have somebody who pick it out the bag um, and put it into a machine. Once it's in the machine, you are, in German, the term is Ordnungszustand. You're, you know where the thing is again, right? But sort of on the trolley, you, you've lost control of uh, how it's oriented and uh, how it's interlocked with other pieces. So you lose some of that control to give you flexibility. And then the human uh, that picks the part, but could also pick any other part, uh, gives you back that flexibility of how to combine your assembly stations um, into a flow of material and value. This is where AI can for the picking, for the actual assembly, for undoing some of the disorganization you need to allow to happen for making you flexible. Kind of like the fighting the entropy, so to speak. Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's what intelligence does, right? That's the weird thing about humans and intelligence in nature. We fight entropy. This is an organized space. It's a nice house. There's no jungle here. And lots and lots of people do work all the time to keep the entropy out. And this is the result of intelligent behavior, right? That's what's going on. Organizing things, uh, and that's what the intelligence is for. And if you don't put all the intelligence into your assumptions and into metal, into your machines, that's what the automotive OEMs have been doing in the, in the past, right? Then you fight the entropy just by hard pushing it out all the time against what, with all your knowledge about how the world works against the entropy, uh, if you can't afford to do that, you need to apply intelligence uh, and then you either need to use a human or AI. That's your two options. Crows, who are also very intelligent uh, animals, uh, don't work in factories. We seem to have a hard time getting them to do that. Yeah, uh, but they do collect things. They collect things they and they fight entropy they in their own way. Uh, if they had opposable thumbs, that's something I read on the internet and I find completely plausible. If they have opposable thumbs, they would run the planet because... Obviously, birds are a better animal design than mammals are, but let's not go into that. <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful science fiction novel concept that we should explore at some point. Very good. Ronnie, we've been doing some uh, background and some research on you, and we wanted to ask you what inspired you to found Micropsy Industries in 2014? And what did you think was missing in the market at that time? So the inspiration was really just, I, and I, yeah, I, I wanted to do something that I wasn't bored by. I just like problems that are slightly too hard. And I can tell you this, but this, this problem is um, slightly too hard for comfort. Uh, we're still making the work, but it is hard. Um, so no, I, I've been interested in doing AI practically you know, since I read science fiction in the 90s and uh, went to university in uh, Berlin and met people who were who shared this interest and were as curious as I was about, you know, what's the what's that strange thing that pushes back on entropy uh, and how does it happen? Um, and how is that? Because that's, you know, it's a weird thing in the universe. So I was interested in AI. Uh, and then I was also interested in not working for a corporate. Uh, I had tried that and um, just the amount of, Things that didn't seem to be true that I had to say to please people who were more powerful than I didn't appeal to me. So I said, okay, whatever I do in my life, I will not lie because somebody wants me to. That doesn't feel right. So I, I, I won't work for a corporate. 
because they force you to do that. So I need to do my own company. And then 2014 felt like the moment where you could combine those two things. Do an AI company. DeepMind had just been sold to Google. So we were arguably even already a bit late to the party, right? We could have done this three years earlier. But deep neural networks had happened, which meant we could move from toy problems to real world problems with AI. So that was a good moment to, uh, to start something. And we didn't know we would be doing robots uh, back then. We were just a group of people interested in AI that you know, wanted to do a company. Uh, and then together with our early investors, we looked at just where are the gaps? Where are the interesting things you can do in Germany? When you're good at AI and deeply interested in it, we explored a couple of things that didn't turn out to be very scalable. I have learned more than I ever wanted to know about um, MDF, medium density fiber wooden planks. Um, we did some optimization of those processes using reinforcement learning uh, in the early days. But uh, what really struck us was how nobody was doing um, AI-driven robotics. Lots of people claimed it. And so everybody who uses a camera says, yeah, there's, you know, there's some form of AI or machine learning in there. But nobody was daring to do uh, what we thought we can totally make happen, which is drive the complete motion of the robot, uh, make the complete motion of the robot learnable for where it makes sense, right? It doesn't always make sense, but for the part where it gets interesting, why is nobody doing visual servoing from cameras, moving the robot based on sensory uh, input? And how on topic and how relevant that was, I learned by just, um, I mean, I, I went to a large European uh, robot manufacturer, uh, not you are, um, and pretended I wanted to buy a robot and asked about the AI cap capabilities and I just didn't know what I was talking about and buy a camera, maybe. But that's really all there is. And then I went to uh, Audi, um, knocked on their door, said, can I talk to your production innovation people? Um, just show me around. Tell me what you can't automate today, what you can't solve uh, and then we just walked around the factory and pointed at people and said, why is that not a robot? Uh, and the answer more often than not was, it's a tricky case. Uh, you can't fully predict how the material will behave because it's floppy, right? It's a cable or a piece of foam. Notoriously, the hardest thing is to automate. Exa exactly, right? So this is this is tough stuff. This this can't be done. Or it was a picking problem, right? This, this is a mess. Um, how do you get a robot there to sort of you know, find the end of a cable, pull it out of a box and then insert? How do you do that? And I, um, I had the benefit of, you know, not knowing how hard the problem was, looked at that and said, well, okay, right. I mean, if you take a camera image and um, you take a neural network and then you learn how to move the robot, um, all you need is some data. And, and that's what we did. And then between 2016 and 2019, we built out actually together with, you know, some customers, um, early customers that gave us real problems to play with. They just sent us the material to Berlin and then um, we built a system that couldn't solve that specific problem, but could learn all problems, including the ones uh, where they that, that they had uh, given us examples for. And then 2019, um, uh, towards the end of the year, uh, we started to have a system ready that was able to do that. Then there was a bit of a pandemic uh, that made things not easier for us because, you know, if you sell automation, you need to be in front of the machine you need to be at the factory. You need to have a conversation. You need to be real with the engineers about what's possible and what's not. Uh, and that was hard to do for a while. 
And then coming out of the pandemic, this really took off um, and people realized, oh, wait, we have options to automate things that we thought impossible. Uh, and it's not even hard, right? It doesn't involve doing a three years project with five PhDs and the university involved. You can just buy something off the shelf that will allow me to plug a cable in. Um, the limitation of this, of course, is you know what a hardware limitation is. You can be as good as you want to be when generating the uh, motion of the robot, you still don't have hands, right? The tactility of human hands are missing. The five-finger high articulation of human, human hands are difficult. And uh, I mean, the technology for doing that artificially just isn't there and won't be there for, for a while. So, but, you know, within that space that was limited by, can you get the robot's tool to where it needs to be and then move properly based on sensor information in real time? Anything where that was the limit, uh, there's now a product that you can just buy off the shelf, solve it, uh, and automate. So you started in 2014, very open-ended, uh, so to yeah. speak, and you you went out and you talked to people and you you experimented, you learned in the field, you walked the floors. That was a common theme that we heard on episode three with Matt Malloy, was getting out there and actually walking floors with manufacturers yeah. is, yeah, is yeah. an important thing to do. Um, I, di I did it a lot at Universal Robots as well, uh, yeah. getting out onto manufacturing floors and just seeing what the issues are. Most times, manufacturers are happy to kind of tell you that. And it, it's very so interesting. They're so proud um, and they're so happy to show you uh, what they already did, right? Because it's, I mean, it's also immensely cool. So they, they just like showing you around. Uh, that's true. It's not actually hard to... Um, to find conversation partners uh, for that. Yeah, like. And we talked about it with Danny Denk, even uh, the last episode. It's, you know, manufacturers are very proud of what they do. They're experts in their process. And usually they're happy to show you what that is, uh, you know, maybe under an NDA. But nevertheless, they're still happy to kind of show off what they've done uh, and, and why they are able to make those products that they do. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's also just, I mean, they're right to, uh, to, to, to be so proud of this because it's so alien. Right. If you if you haven't been to a factory, you have sort of a romantic idea of you know how that is, how that looks like the 19th century, and then you you go there and it's 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 really a very alien place where all the material has shapes you have never seen because they don't occur in the real world because they're part of all the stuff. Where all the processes you make no sense uh, to a sort of outside world general perspective. So it's really a a concentrated alien place where dark techno magic happens and gives us stuff at very affordable prices, right? My, everything you see around you at some point has gone through that sort of magic creation of stuff for us that the machines mostly do. Yeah, 2014, a formulative time, as you said, Google DeepMind, uh, the, that, that acquisition. NVIDIA, I think, also made their kind of pivot towards, you know, being traditionally GPU-focused to also focusing a lot on AI around that time. Uh, Jensen kind of- really distracted by Bitcoin, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and, and Bitcoin. Yeah, it seems like a pretty formative time and it took you some years to ramp. Uh, very, very interesting. So uh, the next question I'd like to ask you is, uh, so, so what does it look like to actually bring machine learning techniques to industrial automation? We don't, we happen to be sort of the play that doesn't do simulations. Um, we work exclusively with uh, real data that you record with the real robot in the real production setting. 
Um, and there's a couple of advantages to that that I'll sort of put aside. Um, I'll um, e explain what we do and then I explain why we think that's the right. So, um, when you, so first of all, you have a problem where you say you want to pick a cable that's dangling in free air uh, and you want to pick it up and put it into a tiny plug. Maybe this is an, an antenna cable for a Wi-Fi router that you're making in your So you buy a robot and you buy a Mirai, that's the name of a product system. And then you wire those things up. We help you uh, uh, with that. You get a bit of training for us from us on how to record data. And uh, then you start to record data. And recording data means moving to the moving the robot uh, either through the motion that it's supposed to make, or just to the target where it's supposed to make the pick. So, for the example that I uh, gave you, you would jog the robot um, or guide it by the nose uh, to the point where uh, you could just close the tool and then you would pick the cable. Then uh, you uh, say record, and then you show the robot around. So there's two cameras, or one or two cameras, on the wrist of the robot when uh, our product is involved. And from the point where it is supposed to make the pick, you move it around. You just show it how the workpiece looks like, and how the background looks like, and just the general vicinity of where it's supposed to go. Uh, and you do this um, a bunch of times for a problem like that, 30, 40 times, where you uh, show how the pick position would look like to these cameras for different variants of how the cable could look. Right? It's sometimes like this and sometimes like that. Uh, and you, the angle from which you need to pick it is different. So you create the variance in the real world that you want the system to be able to handle. And you show the correct way of handling it by physically moving the robot to that position and then recording some data. Uh, and then once you've recorded the data, you um, press, I want to, I want to, you know, try this, create a skill that is able to handle all the situations and everything in between that I have now shown. And then the magic happens, then the data gets uploaded to the cloud, um, some computation happens, and one and a half hours later, the skill comes back. And now if we are in UR world, right, in your Polyscope program, you have a single node that says, do the magic, execute the Mirai skill. Uh, and then once the program hits that node, uh, the cameras will turn on, um, and will start to generate in real time the motion that the robot needs to make to find the cable uh, and do the pick in free air. And you can even move the cable while the robot moves. It will just adapt um, and uh, still uh, find it. And then if it doesn't fully solve it, you can just add more data around the weaknesses that you saw. And if you iterate this two or three times, uh, you have a robust, uh, extremely robust skill that can deal with all sorts of configurations that uh, are within the range of what you've shown. Uh, and robustly performs this uh, task. So if you can construct a tool, uh, and if you have a good robot, and you have Mirai, you can solve these sorts of tasks, and anything like that. Um, the most abstract way to describe it um, is, whatever tool you have, we bring your tool to where it needs to be based on visual cues. That's what sort of we are able. I've seen a demonstration of your product picking up a wrench, kind of just thrown onto a table and putting it up on a hook. Uh, and the hook was like kind of moving around like the guy was yeah, the messing hook is around with it. and dangles, right? So, yeah. uh, and this still uh, solves, yeah, immensely cool. Which, which, which is great. And I, I think that's an awesome demonstration because anyone who has tried to automate with robotics before, you know, I kind of say ro robots are are blind and deaf and, yeah. and they don't really have a sense of touch that well, yeah. right? So um, being able to hit a moving hook or something like that or kind of this this fuzzy, uh, as you said, floppy um, object. It's really, really interesting. 
If you liked it, stick around by hitting the subscribe button. And if you want to dig even deeper, please go to reautomated.com. That's re-automated.com to find the show notes as well as notes and other resources. Take care and see you next time.